Wow. Good morning and, and welcome to the story, whether you're here in person or joining us online from home or, or this is the biggie, if you're joining us for the first time at Christmas at our new Timber Grove campus right now, we're so grateful for y'all as you get started, our brothers and sisters over at Timber Grove this Christmas Eve, and we're praying for you from here. We love you, and, and we're behind you 110%, and so praise God for all that he's doing in the life of this church, and Giovanna told you a little bit earlier about um, the, the launch of Timber Grove that's coming up on January 3rd, and and in addition to that, we're going to be launching a new uh, series of sermons that's, I think, going to hit close to home for a lot of us. It's about purpose and why I'm here. You know, have you ever just thought, what, what is it all for? Like this 40, 50 hours at, at a desk or working this job that doesn't really give me a great sense of fulfillment. What am I doing with my life? This new sermon series is going to be connected to that idea, and, and I, I think it's going to be for everyone, regardless of where you are in terms of your faith journey. It's a, kind of a dovetail from a, an episode that we just released of the Maybe God podcast. Maybe you've heard it. It's an episode about the story of Greg Kelly, a high school football phenom here in Texas who was falsely accused in his senior year of high school of uh, some heinous acts against children, things that he didn't do, but he went to prison for, the, for these things. And uh, he lost his Division I scholarship and all this stuff. And, and Greg Kelly is going to be a part of this sermon series on January the 10th. Mark your calendars for that especially because he's going to be here talking to us about his experience in prison, falsely accused, and, and trying to find purpose, even in the midst of that, if you can imagine. And so I think it's going to be a series that hits all of us um, right, right in our hearts. So, if, uh, hey, if we don't know each other yet, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. And as you can tell, we've got a lot going on at this church and a lot to be excited about. But I'm most excited about you guys joining us today. After this year that we've had, I've never looked forward to Christmas more than I'm looking forward to this one. I am amped up and ready. Usually, if I'm real honest, because you can't lie in church, like Christmas is, is just a lot of work <laughs> for pastors. This year, it truly doesn't feel like just a lot of work. It feels like a celebration because we have had ourselves a year. I don't know if you've noticed, 2020 has been uh, unexpected and, and, and quite eventful. Uh, things that we never would have saw coming have happened, all of them, in the same year. We've, we've had, obviously, the pandemic and everything going on in our country. And, and uh, you, know, you know you've had a bad year when the most empty shelves at every store are toilet paper and handguns. Like, you can't find either of those things. Something has gone horribly wrong. And, uh, and that's the kind of year it's been. And so we've just kind of been asking ourselves, how do you celebrate Christmas authentically without faking it? without pretending like we're happy on the surface while really we've got all this stuff packed down. Like, we don't want to do that. So how do we authentically celebrate Christmas this year? One of the ways I think we do that is by holding on to the beautiful and good and funny moments in a tough year like the one we've had. We've all been pushed to the limit of sanity at times this year, but there's also been some silver linings. And one of those for me is just the stories people tell me about how their families are coping with this, this year. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently who he's very proud of the fact that every meal he and his family uh, pray before they eat, right? Which is good, but I think he tells me that a little too often. I think he's just trying to get some points. You know what I mean? He's always, he's always talking about how he and his wife will lead their three kids in prayer. And I'm, it's a great practice. Um, but this one time he said in late November, he invited his five-year-old daughter, that's their youngest child, to say the prayer for the first time. 
like the blessing, right? So this was like a rite of passage for her. And, and he thought she would be really excited and that she would like jump at the chance to say the blessing. But she hesitated and she was like, daddy, daddy, I don't know what to say. She got real nervous. And he said, sweetie, it's okay. Just, just say whatever's on your mind. But you should never say to a five-year-old, by the way, just rule number one, say whatever's on your mind. And so she kind of gathered herself and folded her hands and bowed her head and closed her eyes. And she said, I can say whatever. And he goes, sure, sweetie. And she says, okay, dear sandwich, thank you for being my sandwich. <laughs> and some chuckles broke out with her siblings and she was chuckling a little too, but she, she continued undeterred. Thank you for being my sandwich. You are a good sandwich. And I'm sorry that I have to eat you now, sandwich. And at this point, her father, who was raised Catholic and has a lot of, I think, hidden guilt carried around with him all the time. And, and he was a little worried that they were journeying into some heresy, you know, territory. So he just wanted to stop right then. Just, uh, no, honey, honey, we don't pray to the sandwich. We pray to the one who gives us sandwiches, okay? And she goes, oh, Okay, Daddy. And she collected her thoughts and folded her hands and closed her eyes and bowed her head, took a breath and said, Dear Mommy, <laughs> thank you for my sandwich. No, no, honey, honey, we don't, we don't pray to Mommy. You can thank Mommy after you pray. And that's a good idea, too. Thank your Mommy after you pray. But you don't pray to Mommy. Pray to the one who sandwiches come from. And she goes, you mean like the ingredients? And he goes, yeah, like the, the ingredients. And so she said, okay, daddy. And she bowed her head and closed her eyes and folded her hands, took a deep breath and prayed. Dear Mr. Farmer, thank you for the, the ingredients that made my sandwich. No, no, honey. And he knew the wheels had fallen off. <laughs> there was no coming back from that one. Like it was, there, there were tears of joy around the table. Everyone was laughing so hard. They were crying. And, and he said, I just silently lifted up a prayer of repentance on her behalf. <laughs> and I was like, he said, should I be worried about her? And, and I said, no, no, I don't think you should be worried about your daughter. Like she seems like she's got a, a more powerful prayer life than many adults, frankly, <laughs> that I know. Like, like she's almost got it. You know, she's almost there. Like, her peripherals were spot on. She's not missing anything except one thing, and it's the most important thing. But everything else was there. She said the right things. She said, thank you. She said, uh, you're good. <laughs> she said, I'm sorry. Uh, stuff like that, you know, and she did all the right bowing your head and folding your hands, closing your eyes. Everything else was spot on. Just that one most important thing was missing. But other than that, she almost had it. You know, and the more I thought about this guy's daughter, the more I realized how much she reminds me of myself and most people around me. Like when I look around the world right now, I, I see people almost getting it, but not quite, but almost. And maybe I'm a little more optimistic about the world right now than, than you are, and that's understandable given the year that many of us have had. But I just don't feel as badly about the world as the news tells me to. You know, I know we've had a difficult one, and I know we're still in this pandemic, and I know we just went through an election year that made us all just want to take a shower, and it was not pretty, and, and we're still reeling from some of that, and I know there's been a lot of finger-pointing and blaming and shaming across our culture. We've had 
many reasons to feel like our culture is bad and getting worse. And many of you might feel like people in the world around you are just more depraved, more lost than they've ever been. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, y'all. I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case. And you can call me an optimist or whatever, but I just think we have two tendencies. I think on the one hand, we tend to overestimate the morality of past generations and past times. And on the other hand, I think we tend to underestimate the potential morality of present-day people in time. And so when I look around, I see people who are almost there. When I look around, I don't just see bad apples. Now, the bad apples are there. Bad apples will always be there, you know? But here's the thing. Bad apples have a way of tricking us. Bad apples have a way of making us think there's more of them than there really are. And the internet made that more possible than ever. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Twitter is a great example, right? Because I know for a fact that 22% of American adults have a Twitter account. But I also know it's a scientific fact that 100% of American bad apples have a Twitter account, <laughs> which is why every time you spend 10 minutes on Twitter, you think to yourself, maybe I should, you know, build that apocalypse shelter and stock up on ammunition like I was thinking. Like, maybe that is a good idea <laughs> because people are crazy. But the minute I close my computer or put my phone away and look up, I still see people who mostly want to get it right. People who mostly want to do the right thing. I still see people helping each other out for no good reason other than just virtue. I see people being courteous at the grocery store. I see people rounding up stray carts in the parking lot of grocery stores and getting them into the shopping cart bin. You know, and we always notice the one who doesn't, right? We always notice and we judge them severely. Whoever doesn't take their cart back to its proper place. I mean, they are just the, the object of all of our ire. But have you ever wondered if maybe there's a reason we notice the ones who don't do the right thing? Maybe, maybe that's because they're the exception and not the rule. Like I see people wanting to genuinely be good. I see people reaching their arms out of their cars to give money to total strangers on the street. I, I see Landlords this year, many of whom are, you know, their banks calling and saying, where's the money? But they're giving their tenants a break in a, in a difficult year like this one. I see, I see reasons to believe there's still goodness in the world. And at no time of the year is that more evident to me than at Christmas. When everyone, regardless of religious affiliation, everyone has this idea that we should be nicer and more forgiving and more loving and more patient and more generous at Christmas because there's something in the air called the Christmas spirit. Have you heard people talk about the Christmas spirit? Have you heard people sing about the Christmas spirit and all our Christmas songs? I don't know what the Christmas spirit is. No one does. But everyone seems to think you should have it in this time of year. Everyone, regardless of whether they go to church or believe in Jesus, I was watching this show, this documentary. It was like HBO or Showtime or something about these gang members in LA and, and one of them needed a ride. And these are hardcore dudes. And he was like, I need a ride, Joe. And the other one, the other one was like, I can't give you a ride. And, and, and he sounded much tougher than I do. And I, no, man, I'm not gonna give you a ride. And, and, and the first one goes, yo, where's your Christmas spirit, bro? And I was like, even he get, even gangbangers 
in LA get it, that we should feel different at Christmas. We should feel better than we normally do about ourselves and others at Christmas. Why? What is this Christmas spirit? Why is it such a part of our culture? Why is the Christmas spirit a part of every single Christmas movie we've ever seen? Like, why is it that the Christmas spirit is what lifted Santa's sleigh in the movie Elf? And why is it that the Christmas spirit grew the Grinch's heart by three sizes that Christmas day? And, and why is it that that, uh, that stingy boss of Clark Griswold's needed the Christmas spirit and a little help from Cousin Eddie to give him the bonus that he <laughs> truly deserved? What is this thing? that we're supposed to have, where does it come from? It's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon to think about, but I, but I also think that we're missing something. So I think, I think we know that's the what of Christmas. We should feel that. But I think as our culture has grown more secular, and I don't mean that in a judgmental way, I'm just, our culture has grown less religious, more secular, we have forgotten the why that feeds that what. And any good leader will tell you that the why always feeds the what. And whatever your why is, is always what nourishes the what that you're doing every day. And you can pretend you still have the what without a why for a while, but eventually without a why, the what runs dry and withers away. I feel like some of us, that's where we are with Christmas. Like we still wanna feel the what, but we've lost touch with the why. We still want the love and joy and peace of the Christmas spirit, but it's like we're, we're missing the most important part. We're almost there. We're almost getting it, but a what without a why can only last so long. I was talking to a young man recently who used to go to church here. He moved to another city. Um, I love him. We talk once in a while, and he reached out kind of SOS style recently and just said, Pastor Eric, I love you. I still respect what you're doing. I just don't think I can still call myself a Christian. I still appreciate Christian values and ideals and all that, but I just don't think I believe the stuff you say about Jesus and broke my heart a little, but, but you know, I've been there. Anybody knows my story knows that I deconverted from Christianity in, in the year 2000 and stayed away for 13 years really from authentic faith in Jesus before coming back, but, but, but I asked him to tell me more, like what's going on that, that led you to this decision? I wanted to know what it was. And he said, well, pastor, I've been doing a little research of my own online. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. <laughs> research online about Jesus and Christianity can lead many places. Not, not many of them are, are true, but, but uh, I, I prepared myself. And he said, you know, I've been researching online and apparently there are a handful of other ancient God-like figures who were around before Jesus, who did many of the things Jesus did before Jesus did them. And he said, Eric, you've always said Jesus is unique and special, and it just doesn't seem that way to me. If all these other gods and other cultures had done these same things, like miraculous conception, you know, born on December 25th, like born under a star, uh, a prominent star, like, like visited by three kings, like followed by 12 disciples, baptized at age 30, died on a cross, rose a few days later. Like there are other older gods about whom the same things are said. So he said, Eric, how can I believe that Jesus is in any way unique? He seems like just one more of many. 
You can understand the dilemma. Maybe you've heard the same kind of argument. Maybe you've got loved ones who perhaps are younger and on campuses across the country hearing this kind of thing and bringing it home with them this Christmas. Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you, you need to know that things like this are being said because with all due respect, I can speak from, from experience as, as easy as it is to fall for these arguments, it's just as easy to debunk them. You just have to have all the information. And, and, and it's not hard to find it. Um, but, but the fact is that it's, while it seems true that all these other ancient gods from Greece and India, Krishna, Addis, Dionysus, Osiris, and a handful of others were said to have done some of the th same things Jesus did. None of them did the things Jesus did, supposedly, until at least 500 years after Jesus did them. You follow? So their stories were never canonized. They were never set in stone like Jesus's were in the New Testament. Their stories were evolving for many centuries and in some ways continue to evolve. There are no earlier records of any of them doing anything or having said to have been done anything like Jesus did until 500 years after Jesus walked the earth, <laughs> which means it wasn't a bunch of Christians who said, let's make Jesus sound like their gods. It was 500 years after Jesus walked the earth that other pagan cultures saw the gospel of Jesus taking the world by storm and saw the Roman Empire that put Jesus on the cross sur surrender itself to the Christian movement that they began to say, let's make our gods like theirs. And they rewrote the stories they were telling about their gods to sound more like Jesus. And, and I mean, history is, is it, the historical record proves this. But maybe even more importantly is a very simple fact that none of the other ancient gods you'll hear about having these things in common with Jesus, none of them ever walked the earth. No one believes Krishna, Dionysus, Addis, Osiris, etc., ever put on flesh and walked the earth as a human being. Even their most ardent followers understand them to be gods in the heavens or myths that are being told, but they never, they never walked around. But Jesus is not like them. And you might hear really, you know, angry anti-Christian voices say, well, we don't even know if Jesus walked the earth. We absolutely know that Jesus walked the earth. Even agnostic and atheist historians will tell you that there are too many attestations historically within just 100 years of Jesus's life outside of the New Testament. You have Jewish historians like Josephus, Roman historians like Tacitus and Euripides claiming that Jesus truly did walk the earth and, and did the things, or at least Christians said that he did the things that he did. But the fact that he was born is not a myth. And this is why this matters. Because I think one of the reasons we feel a little frustrated or, or, or disconnected at Christmas, because we're trying to hold on to the what without holding on to the why, and some part of us has accepted Christmas as a ceremonial thing or as a mythological religious thing, like a nice story we tell our children. And I want us to see today that the birth of Jesus is the actual why, the historical event of Jesus being born in the dirt of Bethlehem is the why behind the what, the reason why we should feel love and more forgiving more patient, more generous, is because we celebrate at Christmas time a God who was born in Bethlehem as a human. 
And one of the highlights, one of the few highlights of 2020 was taking 60 people to the Holy Land in the weeks before the COVID-19 crisis shut us all down. And side note, I think all 60 of us had COVID (laughs) in the Holy Land. In retrospect, we were all flat on our backs for some part of that trip. But we made the most of it. We were in in Bethlehem at the spot where pilgrims, Christian pilgrims, were worshiping Jesus in the first century. This is one of the most certain, historically certain, exact locations of a historical event in Jesus' life in the dirt of Bethlehem. And it's not a barn like you'll see in your nativity scenes. I don't want to ruin that for you. But Jesus was born in a cave underneath a house in Bethlehem, most likely. There were animals around and stuff like that, so that stuff's true. The wise men were not there. You should take them out of your nativity scene immediately. They, <laughs> I know everybody likes to have the wise men in their nativity scene. Just put them in the next room. That's basically where they were geographically. <laughs> when Jesus was born, they came around later. But in Bethlehem, a young girl named Mary gave birth to a baby named Jesus. And she laid him in a manger, which was a feeding trough. And we were there in the spot. And uh, a couple hundred years after that, uh, the Roman Empire came along and built a temple on top of that spot, a temple to the, to the god Adonis to try and hide, you know, the birthplace of Jesus and keep it to, you know, the Roman gods. But later, uh, it was uncovered again, and a church was built on top of it. Uh, a mosaic, a tile mosaic above the front entrance of that church depicted the three kings coming from the Persian kingdom to worship Jesus. And it's because of that tile mosaic that during the Crusades, the church of the Nativity was the only church that wasn't destroyed in the region because the, uh, the Persian crusaders came through Bethlehem and saw people who looked like them above the door and said, That's, that must be for us. We'll let that one stand. So the place where Jesus was born is the church where worship has happened continually for the longest of any church across the world. We celebrate today an event connected to history, not just some mythological story. The birth of Jesus is the why behind the what. At Christmas, we're talking about a God who came and gave himself to us in the hopes that you would give yourself to him. That's the reason. I know one of our mantras around, you know, families and stuff is that Christmas is not about you. It's not your birthday. It's Jesus' birthday. But in some way, I want you to know this year, Christmas is absolutely about you. Because God looked at the world that seemed so broken to us, and he said, that world is worth saving. And God looked at you. Maybe you feel so broken right now, but God saw you and said, you are worth saving. In God's eyes, even the bad apples of this world were worth it, were worth saving. And so if you're here today feeling some disconnect because of something you're going through, some deep or tragic loss you can't explain, some pain you don't think you can survive this Christmas, if you're here feeling even just cynical as you look around the world and you see a Christmas season that seems so 
based on consumerism and materialism and it just doesn't seem right and you feel so lost in it, I would suggest to you that you might not be as lost as you think. You might almost be there. You might almost be getting it. You might just be missing one thing, the story behind the Spirit, the why behind the what, your faith that the baby born at Christmas was born for you. That might be the only missing piece. And you might not be as lost as you feel. Things might not be as dark as they seem. If that describes your heart in any way, and if you find yourself kind of on the fence for whatever reason because of, you know, of an issue like my friend had, or, or, or maybe because of guys like me standing in places like this, saying things like I've said, like you just don't trust religious leaders. Okay, I wouldn't either. I'm not asking you to trust me. If that is a stumbling block, just take me out of the equation as much as possible because this is about you and the one who made you. And on Friday morning, we're all gonna be opening gifts. I've got more gifts than ever waiting for me under the tree. Nine, nine gifts waiting for me under the tree. I haven't had that many since I was 17 years old. I am so excited. I don't know what it is. You've got gifts waiting for you too. You might have whatever you ask. I hope you go jazz for PlayStation. Anybody? PlayStation? That's what I'm hoping for. I'm a grown man, but I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, you know, Xbox, whatever, or maybe you're hoping for jewelry or clothes, or maybe you're like my wife and you're just hoping for gift cards because she has no confidence in my <laughs> taste in anything. Just get the gift cards, honey, she tells me. And, uh, Whatever, whatever that is, you're going to receive a gift and your heart is going to be full of gratitude. And what I'm saying to you today is that that gratitude is a sign that you're almost getting it, that you're almost there. You might be prompted to thank Santa or thank your parents or thank whoever gave you the present. I'm saying that gratitude is a sign, just like that gift is a symbol of a greater gift, God giving himself to you in the hope that you would give yourself to him today. So if you're ready for that kind of a change, if what you're doing isn't working, and you know it, there's no better time than Christmas to put God at the center of your life again. And all you have to do is pray a prayer similar to the one I'm about to pray. And if you're already with Jesus 100%, I just invite you to pray for someone in your life who's not as we prayed it together on this Christmas Eve. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for all the gifts you give us. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for little girls that make their families laugh. Thank you for daddies that teach their kids to pray. Thank you for the Christmas spirit. Thank you for family and friends. Thank you for songs of good cheer. Thank you for reminding us this Christmas that we're not alone in the darkness. God, we confess that we have confused the what with the why. In some cases, we've held on to the what and forgotten the why. Right now, we want to recenter ourselves around the Christmas why, the real, actual, and historical birth of your son Jesus come to save this world. Come to save us. Lord, we want to put you at the center of our lives again. I thank you for seeing me as someone worth saving. 
thank you for seeing this world as worth saving. Thank you for the Christmas promise that you are with us, Emmanuel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.